Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about Music Masters Collective, a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. These events give you the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, North Mississippi All-Stars, Brother and Sister, Trouble No More, and many more. This July, O'Teal Burbridge will host the 11th annual Roots Rock Revival alongside an incredible group of musicians for a five-day all-inclusive event unlike any other. This once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, masterclasses, song circles, collaborative jams, and so much more. Roots Rock Revival blends the experience of a festival with behind-the-scenes performances and invaluable education from music legends. You won't want to miss it. Packages range from tent camping to luxury cottages to everything in between, and scholarships are also available. Spots are extremely limited, so visit rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault to learn more. That's rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. So Steve, you uh, have some some big news since the last time we recorded, just two weeks ago. You've been you've been on the disabled list. Yeah, man, I got COVID. Yeah, bummer. It was confirmed, I think, like a few days after we recorded. I do another podcast, and we won't mention that podcast because I like to keep the podcast stream separate. <laughs> yeah. But my other podcast, I had to cancel an episode because I was feeling really sick. Like the actually the worst day of COVID was when I was recording my other podcast. So I had to cancel that one, but wanted to make sure that, that, that there would be no cancelizations of 36 from the Vault episodes. Right. But we did have a cancellation. We did. Because we were supposed to have some uh, IRL FaceTime uh, last weekend, and yeah. uh, the damn virus got in the way. You were coming into Chicago. Yeah, we we're going to have some 36 from the Vault team building, a retreat. We were going to go see one of the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot 20th anniversary shows by Wilco right. in Chicago. I got sick, so I couldn't go. It was such a bummer. And I, I actually watched the live stream of the show that we were supposed to go to. And guess what? Brilliant show. It was amazing. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, why am I watching this? I'm glad to be, you know, seeing the music, but it's also making me feel terrible that I feel sick. Right. It's very bittersweet watching it. Going to see Woko together would have been especially romantic for us because I don't know if we've ever talked about the Rob and Steve origin story. I believe the first time we ever talked yeah. was when you contacted me walking, writing about Dad Rock Yes, Woko. That was before the Fish article, so yeah. I'm pretty sure the first time you ever contacted me was to uh, ask me the story of, you know, affixing the Dad Rock label on Woko. Was that it? I don't even remember that. Maybe my COVID brain has not fully recovered yet. Like, <laughs> I, I just want to say, like, I feel better today than I have in about, you know, 10 days. So I think this right. is like the 36 from the vault vibes soaking into me. It's like healing me. It's like you have to play 
this gig. This gig is unmissable. So there's just like vibrations in the universe that make me feel better. I don't I don't remember that, but that's a. I'm gonna go with that though. I think that's right. If you remember it, you have non-COVID brain. (laughs) That's totally true. And we've argued about Wilco a lot. I think. Yeah. You and I argue about Wilco more because I feel like on the dead, like we're mainly on the same page like we sometimes argue yeah but wilco we've argued about i think there's like actual contentiousness going on yeah yeah it's uh wilco and the national are where we <laughs> we really butt heads well the national is like that's like the uh you know like sarajevo you know like the bosnia conflict <laughs> for you and me you know right like that the, the, we, we shouldn't even talk about that we can't bring that up right. In this, don't bring it. Yeah, up. don't bring keep it the up. vibes. Good positive. vibes only. Exactly. I'm, I'm healing. I'm still healing. Can't flare that up. But Wilco's more of like a friendly, because you like Wilco, but you, yeah, you, you're one of those people who depart after Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, right? Right, right. The way I always describe it is that Wilco feels like an ex-girlfriend to me. They were my favorite band for a while there. Around the time of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, they were absolutely the best band going in my mind. And then I got really disappointed by a couple albums after that. I'm on very public record about how disappointed I was by those albums. Check the the Pitchfork reviews. For a while, I was just like, no, I do not want to have anything to do with Woco. But then I saw them, I guess it was 2013, because you mentioned this tour in the notes too, when they opened for Dylan uh, with my morning jacket back in Chicago again. I mean, you like it's kind of hard not to see Woco if you live in Chicago. They're just everywhere. Yeah, they issue uh, Woco concert tickets to Chicago residents, I think. It's like part of... Right. When you drive across the city limits, they're just like, here you go. Come see Woco Friday night. Yeah, exactly. They hand you a ticket Like if you live <laughs> in, in Chicago. So you saw the Americanorama tour... I did, uh, and I had a great time, and I was it was like, you know, when you see that ex-girlfriend after there's been enough time of remove that you are no longer emotional, and you're just kind of like, hey, this feels good. We're like old buddies now. There's, it's not as loaded as it used to be. And I just kind of was like, you know, what goes doing what they want to do? They're, they're, they're very relaxed. They found like a really good, like sort of, you know, mid to late career zone, and they're just a very pleasant band. So I was excited to see them, you know, in part because I knew they were going to play well, okay. some of my favorite material. But also, you slipped the pleasant in there, very, well, very stealthily yeah. there. And pleasant is a very double-edged adjective because pleasant, in some contexts, is very nice. But like in a musical context, it's kind of a dig. But we're not going to get into yeah. that. But I'll just say, like, right. I think it's interesting that you pulled the ejector seat on Wilco as they became jammier because I, I feel like on the next two records, Ghost Is Born and Sky Blue Sky, and just to make it clear, our diverging stances on this i think those two albums are masterpieces you do not think they're masterpieces it's a little jammier on those records i think we would both agree maybe you feel like that's not the best guys for wilco like when you saw them on that americano rama tour was I think Bob Weir, was he still on that tour? So I unfortunately did not see a Bob date. Uh, It was Richard Thompson at my show. Uh, Somewhere halfway through the tour, they switched uh, old geezers uh, that were opening the show. What happened was because Bob Weir, in 2013, he was touring with Further. So he had to leave that tour to do a Further tour. And Uh, it's really interesting thinking about Bob at this time because this is pre-Dead & Company. And, you know, obviously the Grateful Dead, still a very popular band, Bob, a popular touring attraction. But I don't think that he would be on this tour, this Americana Rama tour, 
if this happened now. I feel like he'd be too yeah. big. Because he was kind of tacked on in a way. He's kind of, like you said, he was kind of like the veteran rocker that opened. Because you you had My Morning Jacket, Wilco, and you had Bob Dylan. And like you had the veteran rocker slot, I think before MMJ and Wilco. Like, yeah, because Thompson went on first, so I imagine Bob did as well. And Richard yeah. Thompson is brilliant. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. but like he's not hugely popular. I think Bob Weir now would be too popular to be in that slot. Yeah, you're right. That does seem like a lull in sort of dead fame. It speaks to how Fairly Well really was a shot in the arm for the Grateful Dead. Yeah. Because like be, just a couple years later. Because now it'd be like, well, Bob and Bob Weir and Bob Dylan would co-headline feel like that would be for sure but the dates that uh, bob weir was on he would join wilco i think every show and they did this Mm -hmm. thing i don't know if you've heard this we might have to share this on our twitter feed but like they would always do i think it was like every show they did dark star into california stars into dark star i don't think i ever have heard that actually and it's like really cool and the thing about california stars is that they play it like warfrat so it's like a little slower and blurrier and dreamier. Huh. And it's like a really cool thing. I know like there's other dates like where they would do Birdsong into Tomorrow Never Knows mm. with Wilco and Bob Weir. So and there's that uh, St. Stephen on the Day of the Dead comp. Yes. Which I think is also recorded live from that tour. From that tour. I think it's also on yeah. that uh, Wilco box set whose name is escaping me at the moment. But anyway cool intersection it's like when you listen to that stuff you almost feel like oh it would have been cool like if bob and wilco had done more together that's like ships passing in the night like because they would do like a like a six song mini set like i have a bootleg where they do ripple and then they do the dark star california star dark star and then they do saint stephen and then they do like when i pay my masterpiece like in the that's a dylan song but it's like in the grateful dead style Hey, I, I got to seek some of these out, actually. I think I would like that that side of Woko. Good stuff. Yeah. But, like, the thing I want to ask you, Rob, because I'm coming out of COVID now at this point. I'm coming out. I'm emerging. I'm, like, ready to come out into the summer season. There's, like, concerts up ahead that I'm excited to see. I missed this Wilco show, which made me sad. Big Thief played in Minneapolis a few days after that. I missed that show, which I was very sad to miss. So I missed two shows I was looking forward to. And Big Thief, I was kind of okay, but I was like, I don't, you know, I'm not going to risk it. Right. Um, They'll be back. I'm toxic. Exactly. Big Thief to Minneapolis is what Wilco is to uh, Chicago. (laughs) But now I'm thinking about you because I'm actually going to a show with you later this summer. Do we want to mention that band or is that going to be thrown? (laughs) We're we're seeing another prominent jam band together later this summer in August in August at Alpine Valley. Sure. A band who shall not be named, another prominent jam band, a very prominent jam band. Right. Do you feel like, because I, I just want to say, like, I don't want to downplay COVID, but, like, it wasn't that bad for me. It was more right. it's more of like a lingering thing. It was like I felt tired for a long time, but I wasn't laid out. I could still do things. I, you know, it, I, my life was never in danger or anything like that. I just right. wonder for you, should we strategically plan for you to get, to get COVID at some point? <laughs> At a time where it's convenient for you, so you don't miss anything like I did. Yeah. Like I kind of feel like I wish I had gotten COVID in February, where I had nothing going on. Right. And if I had missed two weeks, 
It's like, well, it's winter in Minneapolis anyway. I'm not missing anything. Yeah, it's like, a, should I go to like a chicken pox party for COVID and <laughs> get it out of the way? Exactly. I mean, I feel like if we had gone to that Wilco show, I probably would have got it. <laughs> Just based on all the people coming back from Madison Square Garden having it. So uh, maybe I missed my chance there, but you're right. To uh, see the unnamed prominent jam band at Madison right, Square Garden right. who played there in yeah, April. Madison Square Garden. Yes. They do seem to be good at super spreading these days, but you know, most of the people I've talked to said it was worth it. So yeah. everybody's got to make a personal choice, I guess. Now these, yeah, I, maybe you want to go to like the most like mega bar in Chicago. I don't know if there's mega bars in Chicago. <laughs> like, Probably, yeah. Does Kid Rock have a bar in Chicago? Just, just, <laughs> just go to the most like conservative chicken wing place in your area yeah. and just breathe in the air at a time like where you feel like I'm not going to miss anything if I get sick right now. I went to the Moulin Rouge musical the other day. Does that count? That's probably not very mega. <laughs> no, no, no. That's like the op- you're running in the opposite direction. You need to go to like the Devil Without a Cause musical. Is there a Kit Rock musical right. or I don't know. <laughs> a jukebox musical. There will be someday, I'm sure. Yeah. That's what you need to do. And I'm just advising that as someone who loves you, Rob, I just don't want you to miss anything. I know, I know. I think you should do that. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey friends, I'm Sharon McMahon, longtime government and law teacher. And on my podcast, here's where it gets interesting. I dive deeply into the stories you haven't heard about America's greatest thinkers and figureheads. I also interview many of today's leading cultural experts like Adam Grant, Ken Burns, and Patrick Radden Keefe, who share their insights, challenge us to think in new and innovative ways. So follow Here's Where It Gets Interesting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, this is 36 from The Vault. Uh, my name is Steve. My name is Rob. And uh, we're here to talk about Dick's Picks 30. We're in New York City in March of 1972. How awesome is that? That is cool. March of 72 in New York. Yeah. We uh, just missed, you know, hitting it on the 50th anniversary. We'll miss it by what? Two months? 
Our episodes are evergreen now. Right. I mean, people, they may be listening to this in 100 years from now. So the anniversaries don't matter. That's true. It's all good. Yeah. But for those who care, March 25th, a little bit of March 27th, but mainly March 28th. That's right. Three discs on March 28th. It's four discs. This is a four banger. Well, it's a four maybe. banger, but three of the discs are the 28th. The other one is a mix okay. of the 25th and, and 27th. This is pre-Europe 72. You get the Bo Diddley set here. Right. You have like Pigpen before the fall. Yeah. On this album. This is probably the most Pigpen volume, I think, of all the Dix picks. Pigpen heavy, but also like not the typical Pigpen showcases. We're getting like different sides of Pigpen on this record, yeah. which I think is really cool. Absolutely. You know, if you love Pigpen, you're going to be a like a pig and slop in this album. <laughs> a Pigpen and slop. Yeah. And, and, and generally speaking, just like lots of curveballs. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of unexpected songs, songs that you may not even know that the Grateful Dead did. I mean, the Bo Diddley set obviously is the biggest curveball of all, but there's like just lots of songs that really just like pop up here in the Dick's Picks collection. Yeah, I thought our days of Dick's Picks debuts were were over pretty much, other than a stray here or there. But there's a bunch on this, a bunch of songs we uh, haven't gotten to yet, and a bunch of songs that the Dead only played on this particular night. So yeah, this is a really cool one. I, I really enjoyed this Dick's Picks a lot. We'll get into why, yeah. but uh, this one this one really felt good. It hit, hit the sweet spot for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I keep using this word but I'll use it again. This is a heater. We got another heater here. You're not getting any like breaks in our final season here. There's no like, oh, this is kind of like not that great. Don't have to pay that close of attention. No, (laughs) there's no breaks here. And this is another example of that. We can't sleepwalk through any of these. Though I I will say that four discs after the six disker, it felt like, uh, you know, warming up in the on-deck circle with weights on your bat (laughs) and then going up to the plate. Like, four discs felt like a breeze compared to the six-disker, so. Can you imagine, like, getting a two-banger at this point? That would feel like an EP, <laughs> yeah. you know? Because, like, like this last season, man, we're, it's like a minimum four-disc collection, I feel like. Mm. I mean, we're not getting anything. I mean, this, there might be a three-disker coming up. I don't think we're getting many, like, two-bangers. there might be one, certainly one that is two, the 80s one. Yeah, they always skimp on the 80s. That's right, yeah. They squeezed it all which on is, there too bad. So, yeah. It's too bad. That's the only double disc of the whole season. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they were, uh, it was quantity and quality in the final yeah. final uh, season here. So, yeah, let's, let's read some mail and then get into it. I can't wait. Yeah, so uh, thank you again for all who write in. It's always great to hear from our listeners. You can hit us up at 36FT v mailbag at gmail.com um do you want to read this first one this is like a good follow-up to our previous episode yeah yeah hot off the presses from the dicks fix 29 episode this comes from mark who did not list his location usually a disqualifying uh uh, omission it is but uh he pointed out something i think very interesting but please tell us where you are it's good to it's good for us to know. Yeah. You know, we have our, our researchers. They like to know <laughs> we're demographically in the country. Yeah. We're, we're the strongest. I've got a big world map that I put pins in. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like, you know, we want to know. We want to know. Like, we're, like, we'll make local references if we get, like, a lot of <laughs> Philadelphia. We'll, we'll mispronounce uh, northeastern towns. And <laughs> exactly. We'll, we'll, we'll mispronounce the arenas in your, in your region. Right. We'll reference your local... Uh, delicacies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're if you're in Philadelphia, we'll talk about the jail cell in in the 
the what vet? was the stadium in Philly? It was in the vet. Yeah. Yeah, Veteran Stadium yeah. or cheesesteak. Yeah, Pats or cheesesteak. I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure Philadelphia people love cheesesteak references. They're not sick of that. Yeah, at all they never at hear that. Point. They never. Anyway, Mark. Here's a, a nice comment from Mark. He says, "China Doll on Dick's Picks 29 is missing the second couplet of the first verse and the first couplet of the second verse. Uh, specifically, tell me what you done it for. No, I won't tell you a thing. Yesterday I begged you before I hit the ground." So that's about 48 seconds of the actual performance from roughly 57 seconds into 145. Hmm. So you can go on the archive and hear the pure soundboard. And uh, that part is still there. So it's, it wasn't a, it clearly wasn't a mistake in the tape because uh, that's a soundboard source from Dick, it looks like. Uh, Mark continues, I was hoping you might note that in this week's podcast. Oh, well. All right. We let down Mark. Oh. We weren't the China doll experts he had hoped. Exactly. Uh that was probably one of many disappointing moments in that episode for our <laughs> listeners. I mean, we flew through it. We somehow, uh, we, we could not believe how fast we handled the six-disker, so. But again, hopefully people find the disappointments charming, yeah. and they, they think it's part of the experience. Like, that's always the hope with this show. Right. And Mark finishes off. He says, I always thought it was a production error that the engineer and producer, to my knowledge, have never confessed to, nor corrected. And it should be corrected, because the last 20 minutes of the May 19th Fox Theater concert is one of the great Grateful Dead performances. I think we we agreed, oh. and we both really liked that China doll, too. So I think we were so uh, entranced yeah. by the beautiful solo that Jerry plays in that China doll that we, we neglected to note the missing, the, the missing 48 seconds on the tape. Uh, very Nixon of them. Well, I think right now we're going to like give a cue to our producer, Brian, to include that right here. <laughs> and if you want to slowly fade me out while you play that. Tell me what you've done it for. No, I won't tell you. Yesterday I Before I hit the ground And now you'll fade me back in Because I'm assuming we just played that And it was amazing So we've now played this for our listeners we can hear the missing audio right. i'm gonna assume that's on live archive <laughs> and we can just pull it very easily we restart it yeah if not just keep me like doing like the the natural fade in and out <laughs> i think that'd be very good comedy yeah I'll, for our listeners or or maybe brian could just hum the part that we were missing yeah yeah, that's true. Yeah, Brian, you're on that. But no, thank you, Mark, for writing in. Thank you for pointing that out. That's like a cool thing to note. Yeah. That uh, wasn't on Dick's Picks 29, but we can hear that music and enjoy it. And again, we're also lucky that we have live archive that we can draw on, and that's really great. Let's go to our second letter, and this is from Sam in Baltimore. Thank you, Sam, for writing in and telling us where you are, Baltimore, uh, The Wire. Uh <laughs> The Orioles, uh, right? It, what else? The seafood, nice, right? Nice aquarium. Is there seafood crabs. in Baltimore? Yeah, Maryland crab, crabs. Crab cakes. Yeah, crabs. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I'm on the docks. <laughs> I got the crab. I don't know. 
I'm sorry. Um, Okay. Uh, The most random plot line following you guys through 29 podcasts so far is following the songs that have not appeared often or at all in Dick's Pick so far. After some light research, the only I Need a Miracle so far was from Volume 9. Not exactly peak high-energy dead. The only Shakedown Street was from Volume 5, and the only Help Slip Frank was from Volume 3. And of course, we talked about that in our last episode because we were wishing that that had shown up in Dick's Picks 29. Any other notable songs from the Dead's robust catalog that you feel have been criminally underrepresented? That's a good question from Sam uh, from Baltimore. Um, I feel like I've been complaining like throughout this whole show, although not recently, but about Feel Like a Stranger. Yeah. That finally showed up uh, in uh, Dick's Picks 27, the 92 show. But that's going to be the only... That's the only bite of it? We don't get one at that... That 80s show. I don't think season. so. No, we I, I think that's it. Because again, I, th- I think that speaks to how the Dick's Pick series was in such close proximity to the Brent era. It just seems like the initial curation was like, we're not going to represent this era that maybe deadheads of the time would be more familiar with. That was more recent memory, right? So it ends up being represent. Uh, it ends up being underrepresented for that reason. I have a. I have another song here. Well, actually, I have two songs. One song actually shows up in today's Dick's Picks, mm-hmm. and I'm excited to get to that. It's a song that I've talked about missing in a previous episode. It finally shows up here. But there's another song that I just thought of that hasn't shown up. But I was just wondering, before I reveal that song, is there a song that you have been jonesing for that we have not heard very often yet? Well, I think I might be stealing your answer. Because uh, what I came up with was that Touch of Grey does not appear in any of the yes. 36 volumes. It goes 0 for 36. That was my answer. Yeah. That was my answer, too. Touch of Grey. It, which is, like, it's crazy. I mean, they played Touch of Grey over 200 times. It's Even though Touch of Grey didn't show up till the 80s, they, they played it a lot. <laughs> and so, uh, even with the, you know small minority of 80s and 90s shows that we got in the Dick's Pick series, you would think just statistically Touch of Grey would show up somewhere at least once. And it's like, I don't know, it's really interesting. I mean, we're, this volume came out in 2003, so I guess maybe the Touch Heads thing was still a big deal back then. And so it was, it did seem uncouth maybe to put Touch of Grey on a Grateful Dead release. I think, you know, with another 20 years of remove, we can all just agree that Touch of Grey is a really great Grateful Dead song and that it's something that I like to hear on a tape and I like to hear live and I would love to hear, you know, at least a couple versions somewhere in this series. But yeah, they really, uh, they really stuck it to the old Touch Heads and didn't include it once. Well, and the thing about Touch of Grey is that they played it a bunch before it was recorded and released on In the Dark. Right. I mean, they're, I, I I think they started playing it like eighty two in I the think? early eighties. Yeah. yeah, like around there. So like it would have been cool at some point to hear like a show with Touch of Grey before it was released. Right. Yeah, hear the early versions when they were still figuring it out would be a lot of fun. Which you know, like if you if you hear pre release versions, I mean they they basically had the song figured out. It was already like a really cool song. I'm sure. It was one of those songs that people were probably excited to hear before it became this phenomenon. And then maybe it just became annoying because right. it was associated with like interlopers coming in and all that stuff. But yeah, that's like the most, I think, egregious exclusion because it is in terms of chart performance. And uh, I don't know what the streaming is on that song, but it's probably like the most like well-known Grateful Dead song. Yeah, I think it would still be, I mean... 
I, you know, maybe like trucking or Casey Jones is somewhere close now, but certainly like the most successful song on the charts. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, another one that our friend Sam here mentions only showing up once. I think it showed up again, though, just a few volumes ago is Shakedown Street, which you would think would show up, you know, throughout eras of the dead, but not made that as many appearances as you would think. That's kind of an A-tier Grateful Dead song that has been uh, mostly absent. So I, w- I would love to hear some more Shakedown Streets. I always felt like that pushed the dead into like sort of a different zone of jamming, like a little darker, a little funkier than they would normally yeah. get. Could use a few more versions of that. I mean, Feel Like a Stranger is like that to you. He mentioned uh, West LA Fadeaway. Did we even ever get a West oh, I think there was one, right? I'll have to look that up. But that's another kind of maybe you know, slinky I've- song that... Uh, Gets you a different side of the dead. I mean, really, like, any great 80s song is underrepresented. Like, Althea. Like, how many Althea's have we got? Yeah, there's been a couple Althea's, I feel like, because, like, the 80s shows that they do pick tend to have Althea, but that's still... But still, but, I mean, for for someone like me, who, that's, like, one of my favorite, favorite Grateful Dead songs, I mean, it does not show up nearly as often as other songs that we have often talked about on this show. That we're a little sick of, maybe, because they show up so often. I could use maybe three or four more Althea's at least than what we've gotten. So it it just speaks to the general underrepresentation of the 80s and 90s. Any song that was big in that era is not going to show up uh, all that often in Dick's Picks. It's just how it goes. Well, let's get... To our album here, like just talking about the context of this record, right. we we hit on this earlier that basically we have one disc of a Bo Diddley set from March 25th, and there's some covers from like from later that show, and then there's like a play-in from March 27th that rounds out disc one, and like the rest of the record is it the complete March 28th show? I believe so. Yeah, it's the entire thing. And it's like another Betty board. And you can tell because it just sounds incredible. Right. Like, for me, what really jumped out about this record is the the twin keyboards yeah. going on. Where you have Keith, who's still early in his tenure in the band. And you have Pigpen, who is still, like, in relative good health and really contributing to the band. And really playing just a ton of cool organ throughout this record. So you have the the piano and organ going on. And really, it's like you don't really have that element until like the Hornsby, like Vince era. And it's obviously that's like totally different, you know, like where it's like that prominent, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a magical combination. Yeah, I mean, it's um, even on like the Europe 72 tapes. Of course, Big Ben was on the Europe 72 tour. They really mixed down the organ a lot. So you can't hear it. Hardly at all on the official release of Europe 72. I think you can on some of the box set complete shows that they put out, but I've never heard Pigpen, you know, as an instrumentalist as much as I've heard on this volume. So that's a really cool angle and how he works with Keith. I want to say something more about that. It's a Betty board because like it's actually part of that really cool story where more Betty boards were discovered in the early 2000s. These shows were considered to be lost, like in terms of the soundboards. There were audience tapes circulated, but they were terrible like you can read like the old tapers compendium books about that would review what sources are out there for every dead tape and they like all of these shows just sounded miserable which is weird because there are a lot of great new york tapers but for some reason just the tapes did not turn out from these shows so everybody knew that they did this long run before the famous europe 72 tour but you couldn't really hear it except for like patches here and there that were just like really difficult to listen to but rob eaton who is the bob in dark star orchestra 
Uh, you can find this story all over the internet. We've talked about it before. He found a guy who had bought sort of unwittingly a stash of uh, reel-to-reels that had Betty's recordings. It was a lot of JGB, I think, and a lot of Jerry and Merle shows and things like that. So like think sort of dead side projects or non-dead things. But they found the tapes for this entire run. And it was only a couple years before the Sticks Picks came out. So Eaton made copies of those tapes, I believe, donated them to the vaults. And then Dave Lemieux and his team cleaned it up and put these out. So it's another one that at the time, like people knew the shows existed. They weren't secrets among dead fans, but it was like, you know, doubly amazing to hear these shows, not just because it's, you know, a very well-regarded area era of the dead, but also because they just, you, you weren't able to hear them before. So very cool sort of lore behind this one. And again, this was taken from a seven-show, eight-night run at the Academy of Music in New York. Basically, whatever you want to call it, like either a farewell to America or a warm-up for Europe type run right. for the Grateful Dead. But I feel like and this is something you know you and I have talked about as we're, we put together our outline, that it, it, it sounds like Europe 72, but like rougher. Yeah. You know, yeah. like a little rougher around the edges. They're also playing again songs that are a little bit more obscure so it has like a looseness to it that like the europe 72 proper live album doesn't necessarily have it's a really interesting period for the grateful dead because again you have keith coming into the band donna at these shows like were these was this like the debut of donna she sang once New Year's Eve, 1971. She sings on One More Saturday Night. She sang a little bit on the recording of Ace, which is right before these shows. This is really like Donna's induction into the band uh, during this run. And you can hear it on the recording. Like Phil is like introducing Keith and Donna like they are new members. You know, like it's a like a, like it's a novelty basically to have them on stage. And you know, it, it's interesting too having Bo Diddley play with them on that first disc. And we'll get more into the actual set when we talk about the record. But I do think that having someone like Bo Diddley, who, by the way, I think is like maybe the most underrated. Of like the great like fifties rockers, yeah. You know, like when we talk about like Elvis, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, obviously Chuck Berry, big in Grateful Dead lore. Bo Diddley doesn't get talked about as much, but like if you listen to his records now, like they hold up so well, like as well as like anyone from that that period. And there's the music that they play on this record that you can enjoy, but like you know, songs like Pretty Thing, Who Do You Love, and Mona, and like all these just great songs, you know, just coming to the fore. And it, it really does seem like this was like maybe the last moment, like where the dead could back up Bo Diddley and it would really make sense. <laughs> I mean, I think they could have done it in 73 and 74 and it, and it would have been good, but like the pig pen era, it just seems like you know, they still had remnants of that garage rock feel that they had in the 60s like that was still an element of their sound in 72 and even by 73 things had gotten like a little jazzier a little more spacey where like maybe it wouldn't have been as good of a fit yeah at, the, at that point so like in a way i feel like the bo diddley set it's almost like a farewell in a sense to a version of the dead that was about to become extinct yeah I like that you introduced it as like it's, you know, people think of it as a warm up for Europe, but also as a goodbye to America. Because, yeah, it does feel like the the end of an era for the dead in some ways. You know, even beyond the Bo Diddley appearance, that sit-in where Bo Diddley opens for the dead 
is at one of the seven nights of this run that happened to be a semi-private show for the Hells Angels. So even that is kind of like a throwback to the early days of the dead. Like (laughs) it's a little bit more like the chaos and weirdness and just like the mixing pot of, you know, 60s San Francisco, but uh, carrying over into 1972. Yeah, it's amazing to me that like the dead was still tight with the angels like two and a half years or so after Altamont. Yeah. You know, like they were still doing like private gigs for the Hells Angels. I don't know enough about their relationship to know like how long it extended beyond that. I mean, just knowing how non-confrontational the Grateful Dead were, it probably didn't change all that much even after that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think my half memories of the Grateful Dead documentary that was on Amazon a few years ago was that the, the Angels were kind of always like... I don't know if they were welcome backstage, but they certainly like were able to get backstage and Jerry wasn't going to kick them out. And so nobody else did. So, but this is like, we talk a lot about context of shows. This one sounds like, I mean, it's full of context. (laughs) Like this is a Hell's Angels private party. So, you know, from accounts of the show, the angels were working, they were like taking the tickets and working as ushers and like, just imagine this like theater full of biker dudes you know, and Bo Diddley is like the perfect guy to be playing, I feel like, for that. It's just like like just like a bunch of like greaser guys in the early seventies, like whooping it up. <laughs> and uh like it just sounds like a madhouse. So there's there's some good, you know, the a shout out to the Dead Cast, which is working its way through Europe seventy two right now. The first episode of this season talks a little bit about these shows and had some like first hand accounts of what it was. Like Phil, at, if you listen to the full Bo Diddley set on the archive, he talks about, he's got this great quote where he says, as you almost realize it's party time everywhere in this building. So it sounds like people were just swinging from the chandeliers at this thing. And it, everything, you know, in the dead after that, as you said, they get a lot more sedate, they get a lot more professional, they get a lot more sort of their own thing. But this is like the last time they kind of sound like like the house band that they were when they started out. They were the house band for the acid tests. They were the house band for these weird San Francisco gatherings of people, of hippies and bikers and everybody that was in that mix. So that's kind of the fun thing about this show is it's like a throwback to that for like one of the last times. Yeah, there's a great bit. I think we'll delve into it like when we talk about the show, but like where people keep yelling for alligator. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's probably just Hell's Angels dudes (laughs) probably like, you know shooting speed and they just like want like old grateful dead shit at some point and it's like like your songwriting is getting a little too nuanced we need some of like the old like just amped up you know 60s dead here right and like Phil's like we we don't know that song anymore. Like, what, what do you say? Like, like, wait, we done forgot that song. Yeah, yeah, we done forgot it. Yeah, but you can just hear people chanting "alligator" like in the background. <laughs> I just love, I just love the, I love the mental picture of like Hell's Angels dudes screaming for these old Grateful Dead songs. But like, it doesn't feel threatening. It's not like an Altamont type environment. There was enough of a vibe with the Angels and the Dead where. They could keep it on somewhat of an even keel. Yeah, they were on their best behavior. Yeah, I mean, the theater was still standing enough that they could play three more shows in this run. So uh, I guess I guess they were on, uh, yeah, pretty good behavior. But yeah, so it's a, a, a super unique dead show, and I'm glad it found its way into the Dick's Picks. Anything else you want to say about Bo Diddley? I mean, it's like... Well, I mean, it, it, it is interesting. Like, I mean, the dead were certainly, I think, in a, like a Bo Diddley frame of mind like around this time. I mean, we often, you know, we talk about the dead and uh, Chuck Berry. Obviously, they, they cover Chuck Berry a lot. It is interesting to me that like the song 
that sounds the most like Bo Diddley that the Dead played very often is actually not by Bo Diddley. Of course, that song is not Fade Away, which is a Buddy Holly song mm-hmm. where Buddy Holly like co-opted the very famous sort of shuffle, the Bo Diddley shuffle that like he utilized like throughout his songs. It's also funny that like Buddy Holly covered the song Bo Diddley. Right. Which it's like, is it like how do you cover the song Bo Diddley <laughs> where it's Bo Diddley talking about being Bo Diddley? Right. It seems like that's hard to do. <laughs> Although I guess the dead do that in the set, like where uh, they're 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 covering like the self-referential Bo Diddley songs, but I, I know like on the Europe '72 tour they did play "Who Do You Love" a few times. Yeah, I think they played a few times, and they and they've busted out like Mona like from time to time. I mean, these were songs that like the Dead played again in their garage rock period. Like they they played them like in the in the mid '60s, and then I'm guessing because of this set, they were inspired to like revive some of these songs. On the on the Europe seventy two tour because they didn't really play those songs afterward. They, these did not obviously become Grateful Dead standards the way that like Promised Land did mm-hmm. or like some of the, the the Chuck Berry songs or the or the Buddy Holly song Not Fade Away. Yeah, it did make me wonder if Chuck Berry was the first choice for this show and like maybe Chuck Berry was still a little too uh, pricey, so they <laughs> they went down the line to Bo Diddley and or. Bo Diddley strikes me as a friendlier person than Chuck Berry. I think Chuck Berry's kind of like a prickly person. I think a lot of people are friendlier so. than Chuck Berry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so maybe that has something to do with it. But um, let's talk about the venue. Yeah, this is a cool one. Yeah, the Academy of Music. I mean, this is like a lot of history at yeah. this venue. Yeah. I mean, so to, to put it in the dead sort of New York timeline, uh, the Fillmore East was where they would play every time they went to New York, but it closed in the summer of 71. So... I think when they got to these shows, they needed a new home. Uh, they had a new promoter out in New York. It wasn't a Bill Graham show. So they found the Academy of Music, which is another one of these buildings. We just talked about this last episode. Uh, one of these movie palaces built in the 1920s that kind of got run down and eventually, you know, turned, got run down enough that they could throw rock shows there. So it was. Uh, sort of by, I think, Union Square, sort of by the NYU campus. I think a lot of people probably know it better as the Palladium, uh, which is the the name it took later in the 70s. And there were like a bunch of famous things happened at the Palladium. Uh, though I guess at the Academy of Music, should be said, uh, the band's Rock of Ages was recorded there. Uh, Lou Reed's Rock and Roll Animal was recorded there. So two like hugely classic 70s live album exactly yeah yeah but then when, as the palladium they started booking more sort of late 70s new wave bands and things like that the cover photo of london calling paul simon yeah, yeah smashing his bass yeah it was taken at the palladium when, when i looked it up in the 80s it was more of like a dance club and the club mtv show <laughs> was shot at the palladium so if you were uh, had a crush on downtown julie brown as a kid you know you were seeing teenagers at the palladium just a, a litany of classic rock shows the first stones tour the lamb lies down on broadway t- tour from genesis new year's eve shows patty smith john kale and television one year not bad blue oyster cult iggy pop and kiss <laughs> one year yeah springsteen played there of course zappa had famous shows there and then the palladium was closed in 1997 all this rock history happened there and the very last show of all things was fugazi <laughs> which is not the band i would think would play the triumphant last show of like a classic rock venue but you know, that, that's a good way to go out still. And they took it down. It's like now like NYU, like it's a, it's a dormitory. It, it's a dorm. 
Nothing lasts in New York, I guess. Like Nothing you know, lasts. So you can't go to the Palladium anymore. The, uh, the Dead played at the Palladium one more time. They did a five-show run in, right at the like start of May 77, basically. It sort of straddled April and May. I believe you can find some video. Isn't there some like black and white video of those shows on YouTube from the Palladium? I think it's one of those deals like... Uh, at Winterland, where they had like the closed circuit cameras, so they have like just lots of random live footage from that venue. So, yeah, a lot of history in this building, and uh, this show is one of them. No minor league hockey, though. No minor league hockey, right? Yeah, that's the one thing we're missing at the Academy of Music. I like the Palladium more as a name, by the way, than the Academy of Music. Academy of Music sounds a little too scholarly, but little hoity toity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Palladium is a cool is a cool venue name. Let's set the scene here. What was going on in late March of 72 when the dead played these shows. So the number one song in America, late March, 1972, America, Horse With No Name. Yeah. This is a trashy song. I like this song. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a stupid song. Right. The total ripoff of Neil Young. I still like it. I still like America. History, their greatest hits record. <laughs> Very good album. Yeah. America. I mean, they had some singles, right? What, what else do they have? Ventura Highway? Ventura Highway, Sister Golden Hair. Oh, Sister Golden Hair, yeah. That's a great song. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they 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 ripped off Neil Young and like All Things Must Pass, George Harrison. I feel like that was like their zone, and I'm like, I want bands ripping that <laughs> off now. Yeah, like what's better than that? It's great ripoff material. Well, the funny thing about the chart this week is that number two was Heart of Gold. So I would not have, yes. I would have thought that a horse with no name came a little later. Like they saw Neil sell millions of copies of harvest and then decided to do a horse with no name which sounds more like harvest neil than like earlier neil to me but it seems like right away they were in there with their their neil ripoff i think back then you could like record something and then put it out like the following yeah well i did see that faster back then. yeah america's album self-titled album which was the number one album this week too came out before a horse with no name was out and then they went back and added it and re-released it. And then it went to number one. Yeah. So I do think you're right that it was like an instant response song almost to Neil Young doing Harvest and uh, ended up topping topping Neil. Did Heart of Gold even get to number one? I don't know if that was an yep. actual number one single. That was the number one hit. Wow, good for Neil. That was the the spark of the ditch oh, sure. trilogy, you know, because it went to number one. And the famous story about Bob Dylan hearing that song, I think when he was filming Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid with Sam Peckinpah, like he heard that song on the radio and he was like, I thought that song was me. So like Bob Dylan thought that Neil Young was ripping him off, (laughs) which is, you know, probably not true. Neil Young definitely was ripped off by America. There's no question of that. But, you know, it just shows everyone's ripping everybody off. That's how it works back then. Just like the Dead cast, they ripped off our show <laughs> because we were the first show to do 
we were the first podcast to talk about the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah, ever. Nobody had ever talked about the Dead before. Before, and then the Grateful Dead was like, "Let's do our own <laughs> podcast." Except we will actually know what we're talking. Yeah, we'll about. do research and interviews. <laughs> that'll be that'll be the twist, and we'll see what happens. Um, some other like amazing albums from this time though, like, like Nielsen Schmielsen, the Harry Nielsen record. Yeah, one of my favorites. Paul Simon's self-titled record. Mm-hmm. That's a great, great record. record. Yeah. Uh, Mother Child Reunion was also a hit around this time from that sort album. Sort of the start of Paul Simon's cultural appropriation, but also pretty good song. Yeah, yeah, well, that's a can of worms. You know, <laughs> great songs on that record, right. though. Yeah. Duncan, Duncan, come on. Amazing song. Fragile? Yeah, my yes. Oof, love it. Great record. Man, Long Distance Run Around, South Side of the Sky, Yeah, Roundabout. <laughs> Can't go wrong. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'll, just, I'll just read the whole track list. <laughs> um, Eat a Peach by the Almond Brothers. Yeah, yeah. So we're post Dwayne's death, right? That came out right after. Yes, <laughs> but yeah. But he plays on that right. record. Amazing album. Let's Stay Together, Al Green. Part of his amazing run in the 70s. Don McLean's American Pie. I I don't know that album that well. Yeah. I just know. Is there anything else on it? <laughs> the song. I don't know if Vincent is on that album. You know, that's like another Don McLean song about, I think it's about, you know, it's like a story song about a guy named Vincent. Sure. Sounds right. Anyway. <laughs> number one film, The Godfather. Right. Which I looked it up. It was number one, the number one movie for 26 weeks in 1972. So basically the rumors of movies, like it just got up there and stayed there for for half the year, basically. So Godfather, pretty good. There's a, there's a TV show about the making of the Godfather right now that I hear is terrible. Oh, right. I I think I saw something about that. Which just kind of speaks to culture right now that you make a terrible TV show about a great movie, you know? <laughs> that's how it goes. What's it called? It's called The Offer. Uh, oh, that's what, that, that's what that show is? Okay. It, it's about one of the producers, Al Reddy, his process of making the movie, mm-hmm. and he's obviously a consultant on the show. It's like, do we need that guy's perspective? <laughs> I kind of want to hear from Coppola maybe more. I yeah. don't know. Or even Mario Puzo. What's Up Doc also came around this time. Peter Bogdanovich, right. great Romantic comedy, one of the greatest romantic comedies ever made, in my opinion. Slaughterhouse Five, yeah, which uh, I think that was George, uh, George Roy Hill made that film. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that one. I loved the book as a kid. I haven't but, uh, seen either. I've not seen the movie. George uh, Roy Hill made Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid right. before this movie, and then he made The Sting afterward. Hmm. Okay, I don't know if he made any other films in that span, but it just seems like a weird like. Two very crowd pleasing movies, right? And then you make it was his uh, blank check. George Roy Hill also made the world according to Garth. Oh yeah, hey, I remember that literary one. adaptation, big HBO uh, hit. Yeah, yes, Pink Flamingos. John Waters came around this time. Yeah, speaking of Baltimore, that was the Baltimore reference we should have made. The cool Baltimore reference. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I can't believe that was so early in the seventies, seventy two. But yeah, with Divine eating a piece of shit. Yeah, classic scene in cinema. Fist of Fury. Bruce Lee film, great movie. Concert for Bangladesh, yeah. which I don't think I've actually actually seen that concert film. I don't think it's like widely available. I, I watched it once. I think it's on YouTube. You can watch most of it on YouTube. It's very dark. Okay, it's you know it's from that era of concerts where there was like ten lights on stage. So yeah, and they're all just white <laughs> and they're focused on the singer, and you can't really see anybody else. You know, a classic Madison Square Garden performance. Number one TV show, All in the Family. One thing I was going to mention, uh, March 13th, Clifford Irving admits to a New York court that he had fabricated Howard Hughes' 
autobiography. Mm-hmm. I pulled this out just because there's a great Orson Welles film called F for Fake. Yeah. That came out in 73. Have you seen that? I have seen F for Fake. I love it. It's a great movie. Great movie. And he, he talks about that case. Yeah. Because uh, I think the same author, I haven't seen the movie in a while, but I think this Clifford Irving, he exposed a art counter counterfeiter before this. Right. It's like he exposed a, like, a, like a fake artist and then he was exposed as a fake artist. Yeah. And then there's like a lot of chicanery in this movie about like sort of the... You know, the counterfeit nature of cinema and all right. that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's great. It's kind of a documentary, kind of not really, kind of just, there's a lot it's of It's like Orson a meta Wells. documentary. Yeah, exactly. And Orson Welles just wandering around, like, doing weird Orson Welles stuff. It's, yeah. Exactly. Endlessly entertaining. Yeah. Exactly. After listening to The Grateful Dead, go watch F for Fake. I yeah. Think, I think you'll enjoy that film. And maybe The Godfather, if you've never seen The Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> a small little gem of a movie. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. We are ready to talk about Dick's Picks 30 here, Academy of Music, New York, New York, March 25th, and a little bit of March 27th, and mainly March 28th, 1972. I guess we should start by talking about the Bo Diddley set. Yeah. It comes rushing at us like a tiger in heat. Yeah. I mean, if you weren't, you know, paying attention to the track listing on the back of your disc, you might think... An error was made down at the CD factory because you're not hearing Jerry or Bob sing. You're hearing Bo Diddley come out. And, you know, so they only put half the Bo Diddley set on here. I don't know if you listen to the the entire set. If you go on the archive, it's actually like twice as long <laughs> as what they put on Dick's Picks 30. Did you know that? No, I haven't heard the whole set. I didn't know that. I listened to it this morning. I think they were right to only put about 30 minutes <laughs> on Dick's Fix 30. It, it, it's feels, kinda, it, feels, it feels perfect the way it is. It is, yeah. It, it definitely spins its wheels after that point. There's actually two more jams. So there's one song just called Jam on Dick's Fix 30. There are two additional jams. So they pretty much ran through the like six songs that they knew how to play together and then were just like, just play the Bo Diddley beat and we'll improvise over it. So, uh, But this is, yeah, it's just a real like hot little set. Bo Diddley comes out and he plays the hits, man. Bo Diddley isn't messing around. He, he hits the stage and he plays Hey Bo Diddley into I'm a Man. He's he's giving the Hells Angels what they want, right? <laughs> They're not throwing bottles at them, uh, Blues Brothers style. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about Bo Diddley at this point because this was like the early 70s and 
there was this like nostalgia wave that was happening with like fifties rock stars, and yeah. I think it really crystallized with uh, American Graffiti when that right. movie really hit in that was in seventy three. Mm-hmm. But you had people like Bo Diddley, Little Richard, uh, Chuck Berry. You know, Chuck Berry had a number one hit, his only number one hit in nineteen seventy two, with My Dingaling. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> and it's interesting to think about how. You know, this this was like before classic rock had really crystallized as, as like a radio format. Yeah. So this was kind of like the first wave before people really had a concept of like bands from the past who could still tour on hits, even if they weren't necessarily relevant in commercial pop terms. <laughs> so this feels like that's part of that a little bit. Obviously, yeah. Bo Diddley would be a reference point for The Grateful Dead. It's music that if you love the dead in 72, that you would want to listen to Bo Diddley. Maybe this was music that you loved when you were a kid, if you were like in your you know late 20s or something. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to look at it through that lens. I think what's so great about this set is that it does not feel like a nostalgia exercise. Yeah. That it is like just a wall of guitars. <laughs> and yeah. I think what's cool about it is figuring out, okay, where's Bo, where's Bob, and where's Jerry? I yeah. mean, you can tell where Jerry is with the solos, but the Bob-Bo interplay is really fun in this set. Bob is just loving life in this set, I think, because being a rhythm guitar player, I think he just loves like jamming along with Bo Diddley on the Bo Diddley beat. Well, how could you not if you're a rhythm guitar player? Like, like that's got to be heaven. Exactly. That's like you're right in your wheelhouse. And then Bob is doing the sort of Bob like very unique, peculiar accents around it, of course. But I think he's just having a great time. The jam that they play together, I think is actually great. Like I was, I love of, it, yeah. when I saw that, I was like, okay, they didn't do much rehearsal. So they're just going to like goof off for eight minutes, but it sounds great. I mean, we talk a lot about Chugle on this show. This might be one of the most Chugly dead jams I've ever heard because you have basically three rhythm guitarists going at it. He, he folds in so well. Did Bo Diddley have a band or did he just like, was this a thing back then where you would just show up and play with whoever was there in the city? I mean, he definitely had a band in his prime. I don't know where he would, where he would have been at in the, in the seventies. I mean, I, I, I think one reason why the jam works so well is that Bo Diddley, his music was so straightforward and uncluttered. It, w- it really was based on rhythm first and foremost, 
whether it was that Bo Diddley rhythm, which we'll just call it the Bo Diddley rhythm because that's like how you refer to it. Right. But also just like the sound of his rhythm guitar. And it really is something that you can just ride for a really long time and it sounds good. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've talked about drawing connections between the Grateful Dead and the Velvet Underground in previous episodes. And at times I, I was thinking about, you know, like Lou Reed as a, mm-hmm. as a rhythm guitar player and like, what he, I'm sure, took from Bo Diddley, you know, as a rhythm guitarist. Just the idea that you can ride a groove, whether it's in What Goes On or it's in Hey Bo Diddley, you can ride that groove for a long time and it just sounds good. And you can yeah. do a lot of things over it. And you can play it for a long time. And for whatever reason, no matter how simple it is, it doesn't get boring. Yeah. Because of just the personality that you bring to it. As, if you're a really good rhythm guitarist, you can fuse something extra into it that makes it exciting. Um, and I feel like that's present in the jam, you mm-hmm. know, like, cause they don't really do anything fancy in that jam. It's, it is like a Bo Diddley milieu in that jam, right. but it's just like, it just works yeah, so well. Yeah. It just sounds good. And it's funny because like, you know, so the dead, the dead are not the band you call if you want a backing band, right? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're a very uh, idiosyncratic band. Unless you're Bob Dylan or Bo Diddley. <laughs> exactly. The only other person, and of course, it's a very Dylan move to say, you know, these are the, the guys I want to call up. Not some, like, crack session musicians. I want to tour with the dead and have them play my music. I looked it up, too. The only other person I could find that played with the dead as a backing band for an entire set was Joan Baez who did a couple like random one-off shows with the dead. I think she tried to record an album with them too in late 1981. They played a a nuclear disarmament benefit together because, and I think more than the musical reasons, uh, Mickey Hart and Joan Baez were an item at the time. So that's a biopic I want to see. I want to <laughs> see the Joan the, Mickey years. Yeah. I want to see the inside story of their romance. That's right. like, that's my Kim Kardashian and what's his face from SNL. Who I'm blanking on. <laughs> Pete Davidson, yeah. Pete Davidson, yes, right. exactly. That's like what I want. That's my version of that. I want to see, you know, expose. Right. Maybe that's what the uh, Scorsese movie is about. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, Jerry needs a biopic maybe at some point. But let's do the Mickey Hart, <laughs> Joan, Joan Baez. <laughs> be pretty amazing. Yeah. It's just to say it was, it's a great set. I think, you know, Bob is loving it. Uh, Pigpen's probably loving it. Uh, I'm sure he idolized Bo Diddley as much as anybody in the band. The the one who I think might not be loving it is Phil, who has to actually be like a normal bass player <laughs> for this set. Uh, he sounds fine, of course, but he actually has to like play bass lines instead of just, you know, freewheeling all over the place. So, yeah, it's fun. It's like really ragged. I... Can't imagine they did more than like a sound check together before they got on stage and played. And you can hear kind of the rowdiness of the Hells Angels in the part where Bo Diddley's like shouting out all the people he played with over the years. And, you know, you hear crowd cheers for various names. And uh, it really establishes this vibe that we were talking about of, you know, what a weird scene it must have been on this night. Yeah, and again, it just shows. I, I really like the the snapshot of Bo Diddley being at this particular moment in time, and he was probably. I, I wonder if he was even forty years old yet. Mm. You know, if he was, he was maybe just over forty. But this was an era like where being that old was like still like a rare thing, and like the Grateful Dead being like the young whippersnappers backing this guy up and like and deferring to him. Mm-hmm. In this part of the set, I, th- I just think that's really cool. Another thing I like about this disc is 
the covers that come after that, which were from later on in the March 25th show, especially How Sweet It Is, which is a temptation song, mm-hmm. of course, from the 60s. And it's interesting to me because I feel like Bo Diddley, like that set is almost, it's almost like a flashback for the dead. It's almost like, okay, this is what we, this is where we came from. Mm-hmm. And obviously How Sweet It Is is also from the 60s, but it made me think of Jerry Garcia Band because Jerry as that band unfolded in the eighties and, you know, into the nineties, it really was a showcase for like the soul singer side of Jerry and like the very kind of sweet soul singer thing that he would do. Mm -hmm. And this is a song that he played a lot with Jerry Garcia band, not so much with the dead. Like he didn't really do like a lot of Motown stuff. I feel like with the dead, I feel like that was more of like his solo stuff. Mm -hmm. So this is almost like a preview of like what he's going to be doing in his like side project from the Grateful Dead. Right. I looked it up on the old Jerry Bass site. Uh, he played How Sweet It Is 449 times live. And this is the only time with the dead. So every other time was with either Merle Saunders or Jerry Garcia Band or all his other permutations. So that, it's got to be up there with the songs that he played the most in his solo projects, right? I mean, I can't... And, and, that, and you know, I, I know like you are like hit or miss with Jerry Garcia Band. I, 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 I'm actually a fan of Jerry Garcia Band. And like that's one thing I really love about that group is that like the sweetness of Jerry comes out. I feel like with the dead, if he's going to do a slow song, it's almost like a, a death ballad. You know, mm-hmm. there's always like this dark undercurrent. Whereas with Jerry Garcia band, he could just be purely sweet mm-hmm. and romantic, you know, and that came out more in that group. Like the vibes weren't as heavy with Jerry Garcia band, yeah. which I think is like kind of a nice thing about, that outlet for him. Right. So you you get a little glimmer of that, I think, in that part of this disc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we should mention also that How Sweet It Is it, uh, is, I guess, Donna's first official song, Singing With The Dead. Like, these were the first two songs of The Dead set that night. And Donna sings on both of them, How Sweet It Is, and then Are You Lonely For Me, which comes after that. So not counting that New Year's Eve 71 show, this is Donna's for real debut with the live Grateful Dead and she's really belting it out it's Donna man she like is not timid <laughs> she comes right. out and and she is you know the Muscle Shoals backup singer she said uh on the Deadcast she had never actually performed on stage before that New Year's Eve 71 show so the second time she'd ever been on stage before a live audience she had done studio recordings but not live performance she is playing to a room full of Hell's Angels in New York City so pretty cool Well, and she really makes her presence felt, as she often did, on playing in the band, which we get for the first time on this disc. It's from the March 27th show. And we're also going to get it in the March 28th show, which naturally sets up a point of comparison here. Right. Between the two playing in the bands. It's interesting because they're fairly similar. I mean, in terms of playing in the band, these are both, like, relatively short. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. about what... Like 13 minutes or so? Yeah, I think, I think one's 11 and one's 13, I believe. The 27th one, I think, is a little bit shorter. Mm-hmm. And then the the one uh, on the 28th is, is 13 minutes. And actually, I, I went on Heady version to see if either one of these showed up. Mm-hmm. And they may show up, but like I noticed... I stopped looking because I had to keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Because there's obviously yeah. many beloved playing in the bands. The one that came up first before either one of these was from March 26th. Hmm. Interesting. Which I thought was interesting, but I, I'm just curious, like, for your take here about, like, not that you have to compare, but, like, I, I know I prefer one of the plans over the other. And I would mm-hmm. actually say that, that the plan that I prefer is my favorite 
moment on this entire album. Woo. All right. Putting the chips down here in disc one. Well, well, should I just say, like, I mean, I'm just going to say, like, the disc three playing. Yeah. The March yeah, 28th playing right. is my favorite moment on this entire album. Like, that's the, like, I've been listening to that a lot yeah. the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, they are both great. I think I, I don't know, just for the sake of confrontation, I'm going to pick the first one instead of the second one. <laughs> um, because um, I like. Uh, really? Like, but do you really believe that? Or are you just saying that for the drama? On no, our, no, on I, I, do, I do. I think I do believe it. I like, it's one of these deals where I like one of them with my head and one with my heart. And I think I like the first one more with my heart. Because, and I'll explain why. Like, so I, you know, this era of playing in the band you're right, they're, they're, it's still sort of a short song. It's got. It's starting to get longer, right? They played it in 71. I, they might have even played it back in 70. I forget when it debuted exactly, but it was pretty in the box, you know, for a while when they played it. He just recorded it for Ace right before these shows uh, in January and February. And I think around then is when they unlocked it as like, this has the potential to be a new jam vehicle for us. They played it every night of this run. So I think all seven shows have a plane in the band. They played it, I think, pretty much every night of Europe, too. And I've heard some of those Europe versions, and I was never really all that impressed by the Europe 72 versions. Like, the version that is on Europe 72 and the other versions I've heard seem pretty, like, tame, even though they are starting to stretch out that middle part a little bit. But these, both of these are, like, fierce. Like, crazy fierce in the middle. Jerry is doing some really crazy, like, heavy wah pedal soloing over it. And, I mean, where the two versions are different, I think, is that the first one just has this, like, crazy intense Jerry wah part and then drops back into the second verse. The third one is like, here's a sneak peek of what we're going to do when we start playing this song for 20, 30, 40 minutes in 73 and 74. It's got the heavy wah part, and then it drifts off into space for a few minutes, and then it comes back to the second verse. So I like that as like foreshadowing of the next couple years of this song. The first version really popped to me as like, man, this is like an intense, intense version of this that is has sort of like a primal dead feel, but is still uh, a little bit extended. A, a good mix of what came before and after, I think. See, for me, the, the disc three playing from the March 28th show Go to the three minute, 15 second mark Mm -hmm. when they transitioned into the jam. It is so fucking sick. Like (laughs) they just lock in so smooth. It's like the most exciting moment on this whole album. Really, when I say this is my favorite song on this record, it's really about that moment when they lock into that. Yeah. At 3.15 and the playing in the band from the disc three, March 28th version. It is so sick. So smooth. I just, I can't entertain any arguments that March 27th, which I think is cool. I like that version too. But like the way they just slide into that, it's so cool. I love it so much.
to me, it has a little bit more of like a can't you hear me knocking type vibe to it. Yeah. You yeah. know, where it feels like kind of like a very kind of sleazy Santana aping, you know, again, like Rolling Stone Sticky Fingers type vibe. I love it so much. I really love, again, like how, like you said, it's pointing to 73, 74, but it's a little more compact. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go quite as far out there. It just strikes a balance for me of like the primal dead and the more trippy dead. And obviously, you know, like you said, they're playing the song all the time. And like each of the versions are like a little bit different. I just feel like they hit that transition into the jam so perfectly on right. the March 28th version. It, I, I just feel like there's a discernible difference on that take. For me. Right. To your point about it sounding a little bit Latin, a little bit like the Can't You Hear Me Knockin' Jam, this is kind of this is one place where Pigpen's instrumental contributions are actually pretty significant, I think, because he's playing it's actually called the Guiro. I had to look it up. But like the wood block with the the ribbed word wood block that you, you know, rub a drumstick on and it makes that sort of like rattly noise. That sort of like percussion piece, which is something that Pigpen I think used a lot. You know, he used to use it in Dark Star. Like that's what Pigpen did during Dark Star <laughs> in like the late sixties, early seventies. It like really jumped out at me as adding like a unique flavor to this this version of play in, which I liked a lot. Speaking of uh, Pigpen, and we alluded to this earlier, just the quality of the recording, you really can appreciate Pigpen and Keith working together on this record. And, you know, as we are transitioning now into disc two, it really does highlight songs that we have previously on this show uh, maligned because we hear them all the time. But uh, we just want to say that for Dick's Picks 30, Tennessee Jed, we both really love this version. Yeah. The Keith and like Pigpen interplay on this song, I think, really elevates it. And it's also like a little peppier mm-hmm. than what we're gonna get. Even like later on in the 70s. Right. I feel like this song starts to drag a little bit. But 72 sounded pretty great. And we we were both saying like uh, we like this version of Tennessee Jed a lot. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I went back and listened to Europe 72, and the Jed on Europe 72 is is really good, too. It's very similar to this, though it's mixed a little differently. So you don't get that really interesting Pigpen-Keith dynamic that you get here. But yeah, it's like, um, I, I didn't realize, I guess, because they mixed them down so often, I didn't realize how much Pigpen was playing organ during this era of the dead. I always think of like early 72 as being Pigpen on the decline. Like they always talk about how in Europe is when he really seemed to start getting sick, sickly over the course of that trip Um, and getting real skinny. The photos of him in Europe, he looks like a skeleton, you know, with skin hanging on it. But this show, I think maybe because it's back home still and he hasn't done a lot of hard traveling, he sounds really present and his organ parts are actually really interesting. 
And the combination of him doing organ over Keith on Jed doing sort of the barrel house Jed piano that you love so much from the the Hornsby version that we heard a a long time ago. It just works really great. Uh, There's also a Broke Down Palace later on this disc. Broke Down Palace already sort of a hymnal song. But here you get Pigpen just laying down those like church organ chords over it. It just works beautifully. Like, and Keith, you know, always a great listener, always good at not overplaying is is meshing really well with Pigpen. Like you would uh, I have always felt like Pigpen resented them hiring Keith, right? And so maybe there was some sort of clash. But you don't really hear it on this at all when you can hear both of them so clearly on this Betty recording. They really seem to be playing off each other beautifully on Broke Down Palace. Sugary was another one that I, I thought you could hear the two of them really well and they were just, you know, woven together really well. Yeah, that was kind of the revelation for me was that when Pigpen wasn't singing, he was still a very active member of the band at this stage and was adding a lot to their sound uh, in a way that I hadn't anticipated. Well, and you're also, along with the great organ playing, and I'm, I totally agree with you. They, again, I love hearing his organ, which is a very kind of 60s-sounding organ. I mean, being a Dylan fan, I keep thinking of like Highway 61 Revisited, you know, that aesthetic where you have the organ and a piano going on at the same time, which is something I'm always a sucker for any band that does that i'm totally on board with and you definitely have that dynamic going on here you do have Pigpen though also singing a lot and i i think that that probably speaks to the audience i'm sure the hell's angels love to hear Pigpen sing but again it's not him doing the standard you know turn your love light or good morning little schoolgirl type stuff that like we've heard before you get like a chinatown shuffle on this record you also get a mr charlie and i just want to say call back to our letter from earlier in this episode asking what songs have we missed in previous dicks picks mr charlie is absolutely like one of those europe 72 era songs that i've always really enjoyed and i've always really liked that as a pig pen showcase Mm -hmm. and we haven't got that until now uh this is our Mr. Charlie debut. So I always thought like that's such a cool, like, you know, swaggering type blues rocker for Pigpen. And, you know, I I think with Pigpen for me, sometimes I get a little tired of like the really long Pigpen songs. Yeah. Which can feel like a little tiresome sometimes, like if the jam doesn't catch fire. But like these punchier, like three or four minute songs, like I really like Pigpen coming in and like the energy that he brings. Even if it's a song like Chinatown's Shuffle or like what we're going to get later uh, with The Stranger, Two Souls in Communion, that's like a longer song, like a big love ballad coming up on disc three. Yeah. I don't I don't know that those are like great songs necessarily, but the fact that we haven't heard them very often and, and just the energy again that Pigpen brings to them, I, I was happy to hear them. Mm-hmm. If like The Stranger, and again, I have to include the parenthetical, <laughs> Two Souls in Communion, if that were on every other Dick's Picks, I'd probably be like, okay, yeah, ax that song. But hearing it on this record, I was like, oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate what Pigpen is bringing here, and I'm glad that he has this showcase. Mm-hmm. By the way, if we hadn't called it 36 from the vault, we should have gone with two souls in communion for our podcast name. <laughs> 36 souls in communion. <laughs> um, totally agree. I mean, this is, like I said, Big Ben is like the MVP of this, this, this volume for me. You were talking about how it makes you happy to hear all these songs. Mr. Charlie, one thing I love about Mr. Charlie is that it hits that zone. I, I, I think Jerry loved being a backup singer. Like he loved 
being like the other two ladies in the Supremes, like being the response <laughs> in a call and response, right? So Mr. Charlie is a great call and response song where I think it's Jerry and Phil answering the chuga chugas and the all, all the nonsense lyrics. They love it. They're having a ball. And it's just like Pigpen, like, you know, he's like singing the song about like a badass. You yeah, know? exactly. It's like fits right in with his character. Yeah. It's like a tough guy song and it's like, oh yeah, this is great. And this is where you feel like, like this era of the dead, like what's so great about it is that you have these characters that come into the scene where they can just have like a great scene. It's like a, it's like an old movie, like where you just have a great supporting actor. They can just do their supporting actor thing in one scene and kill it and then take a step back. And like, it's like the perfect dosage of that element. And there's something that changes too with like putting Pigpen in the rotation. We've talked about the Jerry Bob alternating songs thing and how sometimes that can make for like a real sort of herky jerk flow in some sets where you get like a moving Jerry ballad and then you get, you know, El Paso or Mexicali blues or something. There's something about Pigpen slipping in there that smooths it out for me. And it doesn't seem like it should work because it seems like he's more on like the Bob side of being sort of like the macho dude. But with the three of them alternating, it really like gives an interesting dynamic that I think makes these shows like ride a little more smoothly for me. I wanted to ask you, so at the time of this recording, you have just published an omnibus about the greatest rock, well, all, not just rock, music lead singers of all time. And you came up with basically like a whole taxonomy for different types of lead singers. Now you punted on the dead. You ruled out all bands where there are multiple lead singers. Yes. But I want to know if you just had to rank the lead singers in the dead, what would your ranking be? Well, I mean, that's really hard because, okay, well, obviously Jerry is number one. Mm-hmm. Um, are we counting Donna as a lead singer? I guess she's not really a lead singer. <laughs> no, I wasn't. No. I guess because Sunrise is the only song, I believe, that she sang lead on in The Grateful Dead. I don't know how you feel. I feel like it would unfold fairly predictably because you have Jerry number one. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah. Number two, it's probably Bob. Although I'm a little tempted to say Brent. Yeah. I feel like if I'm going to be like interesting, I would say Brent number two. Mm-hmm. Then I would say Bob. And then I guess I'll say Pigpen. But it's tough. because This is where the whole ranking thing gets revealed as a sham. <laughs> because it really is about what do you want right. from a lead singer? And like what do they bring to the table? Like Jerry has... The most, you know, soulful, beautiful, like, that's the voice you just want to hear. It's like the it's the voice you need to hear. So he's like a natural number one. Bob, I feel like, in a way, had to take over the Pigpen role mm-hmm. after Pigpen died. Because I think Bob is, like, not naturally a singer, you know, in the same way that Jerry is. I think Jerry just has, like, a really good voice. There's something about Jerry that's, like, very easy about the way he sings. Right. Whereas, like, Bob, I feel like it's uh, he gets by on his energy and his spirit and his phrasing. But right. it's not necessarily his voice. So, I don't know. I, I just feel like all those singers, they bring something else different to the table where it's hard to put them in a, in a, or, in a different kind of order. I feel like, in a way, Brent, Pigpen, and Bob are kind of working in the same area if that yeah. makes sense yeah 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 as sort of the jerry foil yeah they're the jerry foil they're like the showman mm-hmm. they're like the soulful like they're the bluesy 
right person. But I mean, Bob, you have to give the respect for just because he's the the other thread here along with Jerry. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? Am I am, am I punting here? Am I am I copping out? I don't think so. No, I think that's kind of what I expected. I think I would put Pigpen a little ahead. It, it, it's tough to tell. And I like what I liked about your your system for grading lead singers was that it was not just vocal prowess, right? It wasn't just musical ability, right? vocal ability. There's also charisma. And the fact that some singers are like the wild man and some singers are like the, you know, I forget what you call, what would you call for like Michael Stipe and like the more sensitive lead singer? Well, there's like the personal lead singer. There's like the the suave lead singer, like Mm -hmm. like a Brian Ferry or like a Morrissey or something or Simon LeBon from Duran Duran or whatever. Right, right, exactly. So, so Pigpen, I, we've said this before, I feel like, maybe a long time ago, but I feel like we cannot judge Pigpen on tape alone. Like, Pigpen is the one that doesn't translate to sitting at our house 50 years later, listening to a tape of the dead. Like, if you were at a dead show, I feel like it must have been so exciting for Pigpen to come out, because it was just, like, party time. <laughs> like, and, like, you know, you had Bob Pollard surprisingly low on your rankings, but I feel like Pigpen had a little bit of, like, Bob Pollard energy to him. Where it was just like, here is the party. Like, the club is open. Right. Pigpen is here. Everybody throw down. That doesn't translate to tape as well as, you know, what Jerry or Bob or even Brent uh, were doing in their respective eras. So, this was a show where, you know, between the context of the Hells Angels being there and the fact that Pigpen sounded so great and played such a diversity of material that it really, like, sold it for me. That like the pig pen features were like an essential part of the show, even this late in his life, rather than sort of like a a vestige of the early dead that they were just kind of like playing along with, even though they had all these amazing new songs and more complex jamming that they were becoming good at. Yeah, and exactly. I agree with that. And again, the organ playing and like just pig pen's showmanship. And again, I, and we, we referenced this earlier, but, you know, you hear a lot of Europe 72 songs in this set. You know, we haven't talked about Black-Throated Wind, which is a great version of that yeah. on this record. And it, it just seems like a, it's like a less polished version of Europe 72, which what more can you ask for? Yeah. You know, as great as Europe 72 is, I think you want like a, like a grittier version of that. Like right. it, It's hard to pass that up. We talked about, I think it's Dick's Pick 16, we talked about being like almost like an alternative Live Dead, like where it had Dark Star and St. Stephen and The Eleven and all of those. Uh, this is like the alternative Europe 72, which is a little funny to say now because you have every note of the entire European 72 tour available uh, on Spotify <laughs> if you really want to listen to the entire tour, which I know a lot of people are doing right now. So you, maybe you don't need an alternate Europe 72, but that, I mean, I, I still think this is like an essential show for that because as you said up at the top, they're still working things out. This is like the rehearsal for Europe 72. All these songs are a little more raw, a little more unfinished. Cumberland Blues on this disc is the one that really shows that because Cumberland Blues on Europe 72 famously has extremely fake studio overdub vocals <laughs> where are, they are harmonies that the dead never achieved, never even came close to achieving in a live context. But here you get Cumberland Blues, which is the perfect song for this era of the dead i feel like like this like you know sort of fast bluegrassy like interwoven vocals like change switching back and forth between who's singing lead here you get like a version that's just the like straight up this is what they sounded like live warts and all vocals a, a superior version i would say to the europe 72 
uh, take. Yeah, and they're not in Europe. You know, they're not in an unfamiliar place. They're in New York, one of their yeah. strongholds, and they're playing in front of a bunch of, you know, like chain-swinging madmen, <laughs> you know, which was like their ideal audience. Right. So it's it, it's like a little more comfortable. It's a little more down-home and loose and... You, yeah, you you get that vibe. That's that's what's great about it. One thing we need to talk about, and moving on to the the third disc, is the looks like rain. Yeah, here I'm gonna call this like one of the best looks like rains I've ever heard. Yeah, like, this is this is such a great version. Well, it has a, a secret weapon, a very important secret weapon. Well, yeah, the the pedal steel. Yeah, Jerry utilizing which you know, and again, like Jerry Garcia, obviously like one of the greatest guitar players of all time. But y- there are certain what ifs with him. Where you're just like, oh, what if he had followed pedal steel a little bit more? Because he didn't play it a whole lot with the dead, didn't play it a whole lot live. But there's still like famous instances of him playing pedal steel guitar. Like the most famous instance would be on Teacher Children. Right. From you know, CSNY's Deja Vu. And his pedal steel playing on that song is gorgeous. Like just it's a, it's the best part of that song. That's yeah. kind of a saccharine song, but like the pedal steel part is it sells it. Yeah. It sells the song. I also want to shout out two other instances of Jerry playing pedal steel in the CSNY camp. Also plays amazing pedal steel. This might be the greatest Jerry Garcia pedal steel performance of all time on the David Crosby song Laughing. Right. Just mind-blowing playing on that song. He also plays really good pedal steel on the song Southbound Train, which is on the Crosby and Nash record which came out in 72, which is roughly around the time of these shows. And his playing on that song in particular reminds me of his playing on This Looks Like Rain. Right. Where it's it's not as psychedelic as it is on Laughing, but still really eloquent, really beautiful. And it just makes you feel like, why didn't he do this more often? I know. I mean, it just must be an incredibly difficult instrument to play, <laughs> I think. If he's struggling... Yeah. He's struggling beautifully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Song, man. I just think, you know, like Jerry, you know, God bless him, was a man who liked comfort <laughs> in the way that he dressed, in the way that he lived his life. I think at some point, and, you know, pretty soon after this show, because I think he plays pedal steel in Europe on Looks Like Rain for like half the tour, and then they start playing it without the pedal steel. So at some point, I think he just decided, like, it, this is more trouble than it's worth to me. Uh, so I'm just going to put it to the side. But. Hey, we have this version, which is incredible. You're right. Maybe the best looks like rain I've ever heard. And I love the pedal steel guitar.
Now we have already sort of pre-debated this a little bit. Does this make me a hypocrite that I love pedal steel when I am very much uh, anti-slide guitar, as has been mentioned many times before in this podcast? What do you think, Steve? Well, okay, so, you know, defending you here. Yeah. is I, I, I do think that pedal steel is generally like a softer sound. It's a dreamier sound. It's it, not as like abrasive and yeah. You know, like, I I think pedal steel can be. I mean, obviously, if you're talking about like a Dwayne Allman, Elmore James style of slide guitar, it's it's more piercing. It's a, it's more a beat. It's uh, maybe more needling in a way that you would not find appealing. Mm-hmm. I will say, however, and this is where I'm going to transition into prosecuting you here a little bit. <laughs> That at least when Jerry plays slide, I think that Jerry, like when he plays slide, he plays it more like a pedal steel. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm thinking like his playing on Weather Report Suite, for instance, mm-hmm. in, the, in like the slow part of that song. It's a slide guitar, but I think it's kind of emulating more of like a pedal steel type feel. It's like not, again, that, that more kind of piercing sound of like a jump blues type vibe right it is more of a dreamy vibe so if you're going to fault jerry for playing slide on weather report suite but you're gonna love this (laughs) i might sort of question you on that i i I just think it all goes back and we might have to have a therapist on the show it's about (laughs) your sort of pathological hatred of the blues right yeah you just hate the blues so much that you hate slide guitar whereas pedal steel reads more as country Right, yes. And maybe that's why you feel a little more comfortable with that. Which also makes me feel a little sketchy. <laughs> because of the old thing that like country and blues were basically the same thing. It was just like a marketing to white people versus black people yeah. uh, designation in the old days. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I would prefer to spin it as that I'm just a big wuss. And you're right. Like the pedal steel is a softer sound. It's a more gentle sound. It's yeah, doing I mean, it's sort of the same thing. Yeah, I mean, like the the pet the pedal steel players I like today are also more on like the sort of ambient like noise versions of pedal steel. You know, like your Chuck Johnson type of guy, or like the you know Apollo album or things like that, where it's just this like gentle swooshing sound, and that's what he brings to Looks Like Rain. I would love to hear him play pedal steel on the Weather Report Suite. It would probably turn that song totally around for me. I don't think it would be dramatically different though. Yeah. I, I really, I really think that what he's doing on slide isn't that different but i i mean i'd love to hear it too i mean maybe it would i mean look i prefer pedal steel to slide if i had to pick one you know i'd pick pedal steel but like i i mean i love slide and i really love the way jerry plays it i also love the way dwayne allman and elmore james play it right or you know Derek trucks you know that style of slide i love that too i mean i understand it is more like in that blue style it is more it can be more of like an upbeat type thing maybe Mm -hmm. and that's a little more grating as opposed to like a more of a psychedelic dreamy type feel that you get from it but again i mean man the pedal steel on the looks like rain here along with that aforementioned playing in the band for march 28th really is like some of my favorite music on this disc i mean it's so beautiful you get a really strong china writer on this disc i mean for me this is one place where the europe 72 version i think actually beats out this version the europe 72 china writer is like perfect 
to me. I mean, there's going to be better China writers, but as like capturing the dead at this point, the Europe 72 version kind of beats it for me, even with the sort of fakey vocals. Uh, this is a great China writer, though. And hey, I'm not I'm never going to turn down China writer or Casey Jones, the, the faster sugary, like all the stuff on here. All of these discs, just like Europe 72. I don't know. It's comfort food dead, right? I mean, it's just yeah. like, there's there's nothing really prickly about it. There's nothing you really have to work to appreciate. It's just like, you throw it on, El Paso sounds great, Big Railroad Blues sounds great. It's just like, this is, you know, one version of the dead. It's the best of one version of the dead, I think. Well, and we didn't shout out, like, You Win Again. Like, I love hearing yeah. that song, like the old Hank Williams song. And hearing Jerry sing Hank Williams. Can't go wrong. Um, I do want to dip back into the pig pen just one more time and like focus on the stranger for a minute because i do find the stranger to be just a really unusual pig pen song like you mentioned earlier you what you described it as like a love ballad which is that's pretty much what it is right it's kind of like this very like mournful it's like the most emo pig pen ever got <laughs> like it's, it's like he's singing you know again you have mr charlie where yeah you he's singing songs about like people getting into fights right exactly maybe even like killing somebody or balling and like and then and then he actually says the phrase two souls in communion i <laughs> know exactly it, it is a little bit like you know it, it's like vin diesel <laughs> Getting behind a piano and singing like "Just the Way You Are" by Billy Joel or something. <laughs> I love it though, and it's. I find it like beyond being sort of the novelty of that. I actually think it's a pretty good song. It makes me sad that the Pigpen solo album that was supposedly in the works when his health really took a dive didn't come to fruition. It's not going to be like the greatest Grateful Dead thing ever, but I, I feel like it would be like a really fascinating thing to have, just like pure Pigpen, because he wrote this song. He wrote Chinatown Shuffle. Pigpen had just pretty much started writing music. Like, he didn't write a lot of the early songs that he played. He was doing a lot of covers. So it's really like, you know, as happy as I am to hear all these Pigpen songs, this it's also bittersweet because you hear, like, the potential for what, like, a 72 Pigpen solo album might have been if it had actually come out. I mean, this song, we keep bringing up the Stones. It's interesting how much the Dead and the Stones overlapped at this point, but it gave me a little bit of, like, a Moonlight Mile feel. Like, it's got that sort of, like, sad end-of-the-night drunken reverie song that just like the longing of it the like looking back at the road you took to this point and questioning all your decisions and i feel like with the right you know producer the right environment he could have put together like a really great album of some of this material
yeah, I mean, what I'll say about this song is that I really like the vibe of it. I really like Jerry's guitar solo on it. I think that I think Jerry really elevates this song. I mean, it's it's a very long song. I think it it should be about half as long as it is <laughs> on this record. Yeah, and like again, like I don't think it's a great song, but like I'm with you. I wish that this had been a record. And I like the idea of Pigpen going in. Like, I like the idea of this song. I don't think that, like, this is a song that I'd want to hear on every Grateful Dead record. Like, or on every Dick's Picks. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I think I'd get sick of it very quickly. But I'm very glad that it's on this record. I like the idea of Pigpen exploring his sensitive side the way he did on the on this song. So... I'll I'll just say that I think it's like an okay song that I happen to really like. Yeah, yeah. You know? So, I mean, really, you can compile your own Pigpen record. I mean, really, like, would a recording of Pigpen in the studio doing this song be any better than, like, this performance? Probably not. That's what I mean. Like, it, it would have to be with the right production, right? So if you got, like, a Sticky Fingers feel to it. I, I, I don't think you'd top this performance. I think, like... Yeah, this is this is this is probably the best version of this that you're gonna get, mm-hmm. especially with that Jerry guitar solo. And maybe you just would lop off some of the verses in the back half. <laughs> I feel like I think you could end the song because I think the Jerry guitar the solo comes like about in the middle. Yeah, you could cut the song fairly soon after Fade that. It I there. think it would probably work. You know, we've said like a lot of nice things about Dick's Picks Thirty so far. If I can make a criticism. Right. And this is, we're going into the last disc here. I feel like I've been a big other one booster recently to the point where, you know, we've had some situations where there's been like a disc like with a Dark Star jam and a disc with like an other one jam. I think this was in uh, Dick's Picks uh, 29 or was it 28? 28. It was 28. And I was like leaning towards the other one jam. Like I've been right. really loving like the sledgehammer, just up-tempo kick-ass other one jams lately this other one jam left me a little flat i think that that's like maybe the only moment on this record that falls flat for me i don't think this other one really worked for me mm-hmm. i think like it gets into the middle part and it meanders in a way that i don't find all that interesting mm-hmm. so as much as i love this dicks picks if i had to pick a disappointing moment it would be the other one. It didn't deliver for me in a way that I expect the other one to hit home. Right. It, it, it's carrying a big load here, too, because it's really like the only deep jam in this entire set. I mean, the plane and the bands have some really good improv, but they're still, they're tight for the day. Yeah, right? as far as going like for 20 minutes or right. something. Like, yeah, you're not getting anything really deep. This is a 28-minute version of the other one. So it's like, it's it's a heavy, the heaviest jam by far in this set. I kind of, I, I agree with you. I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to push back on this. I think this other one never fully congeals. And it made me wonder, you know, we talked a little bit about how in some ways this version of the dead is still pretty new because Keith had only joined, you know, in the fall. They didn't play a lot of shows in early 72. It's only been a year since Mickey left the band. So we're still in the early days of like Billy solo drumming. Uh, you've got this Pigpen Keith dynamic that maybe hasn't fully worked itself out. Yeah, I find it kind of unsatisfying. I think it's it's searching for something that it never quite finds. It, it go- goes into some really deep space twice and doesn't really ever gather itself into like a theme 
that is memorable in any way. It's one of those jams that just kind of like slides over me. There's a few glimmers where I'm like, oh, they're going somewhere interesting, and then they go into a different direction, and it loses me a little bit. So yeah, I don't know. I'm with you. I, I feel like it, it's a nice place to spend a half hour, but I, with all the great other ones we've heard, I'm not sure this is in the top tier. Um, I kind of want to say that like I think this might be the my most like cancelable opinion in this entire show uh, is that the Europe 72 era of the dead. I don't really like them as like a jam band <laughs> in this. Right. Era. Uh, when you get to like late 72, that's been such a revelation for me in Dick's picks that late 72 really is they're They're really coming together for some great dark stars and other ones. But, you know, I've always felt this way, like, other than The Morning Dew, the third LP of Europe 72 is, like, my least favorite. Like, I don't, I'm not that wild about the truckin' jam and the prelude and all that stuff that's on there. The Morning Dew is transcendent, of course, but, like, the jam is not nothing special to me. Yeah, I don't really think of, like, Europe 72 era of the dead as being interesting for the jams. It's, like, interesting for the songs and the tightness and the, you know, halfway point between the country dead coming back to like a more electric jazzy dead. So this kind of like fed into my preconception that there's not a ton of really interesting out there improv in this era that I'm missing out on. Though I should mention there is a dark star in this run that is very good, I think on the 23rd. But yeah, this one, I don't know. It didn't really stick. That doesn't strike me as that controversial though, because I feel like Europe 72 to me, like, and that's like if we just look at that as a standalone album and we don't take in the context of other shows or something like Dick's Picks 30, it's about the songwriting, you know, like just like the great songs that they were producing at this time and like how tight they were and uh, how focused they were and like how they were like this. It's like the most rock and roll in a way, mm-hmm. album of the dead, like where you can put that, you know, again, to bring up the stones. Like if you're going to like play that and like exile on main street, like to me, like that is like their exile on main street mm-hmm. type record where it's just like, we're just like a sledgehammer fist rock and roll band. Whereas if you get into like August, September, that era of 72 that's when you get more exploratory and that's like when we're starting to talk about like some of the greatest dark stars ever recorded Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like i think like this era it's just like a different flavor of what they're doing and it's and it's great like i love europe 72 for that reason but yeah like on this dicks picks like there's not like a ton of jamming Mm -hmm. really yeah like that's not what's great about this it is more of and we, we keep talking about the Hell's Angels vibe. It's like a rock and roll vibe. Mm-hmm. Early 70s sleazy rock and roll vibe. Yeah. And that's what's so cool about it. And that's what we love about it. But yeah, you're not getting like a ton of exploration real, you know, on this record. Absolutely, yeah. And it's not like safe either. But yeah, it's just like it's a, it's a more direct Grateful Dead. And some people, you know, maybe that doesn't work. But like I said earlier, it's like comfort food. It's something you can throw on and it's always going to be satisfying. Um we're, we're, we're kind of wrapping up, but I do want to give a little credit to the Not Fade Away going down the road feeling bad, because I thought it was a, an excellent version. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it was for me, too. And, like, as you know, the, the other one was, like, a little disappointing, but like, I, I, I love the Not Fade Away going down the road, Not Fade Away. And again, I mean, maybe it's the, the Bo Diddley. Yeah, it brings it full circle from the Bo Diddley set. And again, it's like they're playing buddy holly but it's buddy holly doing bo diddley yeah. and now it's the grateful dead doing buddy holly doing bo diddley but it's also i don't know like it it, it does feel like 
I feel like this jam, like this, this is obviously a very, you know, this is like one of the standard set pieces for the Grateful Dead, especially as they, you know, as, as a set closer. Yeah. I mean, we just said that like this era is maybe not as exploratory as other eras of Grateful Dead, but this felt like a little more exploratory mm-hmm. maybe to me than like a lot of versions of this set piece that we've heard. Yeah, it really reminded me of like the China writer in between part, the transition between China and writer. And I think even Bob is playing the China cat lick a few times in this jam intentionally or accidentally but it just had like i think sometimes not fade away going down the road feeling bad night but not fade away feels a little like automatic like they're just charging through it this is like the routine and we go through this but it had more of like a graceful transition in and out of the songs this time i thought and a little more of like a mellow feel instead of being the hard charging end of the show version that you normally get with this Donna is, again, uh, really, like, tearing into the song. And it's, again, like, Donna being so excited about being on stage with the dead is, is really fun. Yeah, it's just, like, I think they closed almost every show of this run with this little medley. So, like, play-in, it's, like, this was something that they had gotten really good at performing. But, yeah, I thought this was, you know, we've heard a few of these, and I thought this one stood out as, as being excellent. Do we want to say anything about Sidewalks of New York? <laughs> well, it's just like the last like random thing they threw in here. Sidewalks of New York is a 19th century waltz. I had to look this up. I didn't know Sidewalks of New York. But it's been recorded by Mel Torme and Duke Ellington and all these people. Uh, it's basically like their little like tuning beer barrel polka style noodle before they launch into one more Saturday night. But, you know, it's just one more thing that speaks to what odd shows these were, that they were sprinkling in random pieces of songs here and there uh, and just playing very loose. And they were just in a really good space just at the right time before they they went abroad and had their big European adventure. So it's a good good wrap up. I just love that for Dick's Picks, it's Sidewalks of New York 1, Touch of Grey, zero. <laughs> and Beer Barrel Polka, three, I think we said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Goose Egg for Touch of Grey. So looking ahead, we have Dick's Picks 31 coming up yeah. here. And, you know, this is another four banger, right. I think. We're just doing straight multi-bangers here coming up ahead. But I'm pretty excited about this. This is, this is August 4th and 5th, 1974. And there's also August 6th of 74. Yeah, so Jersey City. So two shows in Philly and then one show in Jersey City. We're getting four discs of like 1974 Grateful Dead yeah, coming the, at us. Yeah, the thick of the wall of sound era. Yeah. Cannot complain. You know, they're about to retire at this point, but they're still smoking hot. Or semi-retire, I should say. Yeah. They're about to go on hiatus in the middle of the decade, but, you know, just killing it, you know, at the peak of their powers. I mean, we are both 73, 74 
diehard. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is going to be a treat for us, I think. Yep. Looking forward to it. We'll, we'll keep on moving through this, this all killer, no filler season. I, I yes. feel like we need a break. We need that. We need that 82 Alpine show just to like cool off a little. Well, or it could be our, uh, our curveball could be the, uh, <laughs> could be the, could be the breather. We'll see what happens. We'll I don't think see. we've decided, we haven't decided on a curveball yet. We're, we're, we're still deliberating on that. We're leaving uh, it hanging. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode. Uh, we'll be back with more. 36 from the vault, more dicks picks while we still have some dicks picks to listen to yep. in our next episode. All right. See you in two weeks, folks. <laughs> 36 from the vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey friends, I'm Sharon McMahon, longtime government and law teacher. And on my podcast, here's where it gets interesting. I dive deeply into the stories you haven't heard about America's greatest thinkers and figureheads. I also interview many of today's leading cultural experts like Adam Grant, Ken Burns, and Patrick Radden Keefe, who share their insights, challenge us to think in new and innovative ways. So follow Here's Where It Gets Interesting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. What's up, everyone? It's Joe, and I'm the host of That's Awesome with Joe, a podcast on the newly formed Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. I talk with tons of your favorite artists, managers, touring personnel, and more. Most of the time we talk about music, but lots of the time we end up talking about something completely unrelated. We laugh a lot. We do a lot of really stupid things, but also some things that are really informative and interesting. Basically, it's a podcast that I think you should listen to. Obviously, I'm biased because it's my podcast, but I think I might be into it if I wasn't the host. Check it out at SoundTalentMedia.com. What's up, everyone? This is Jay Reason, and I want to let you all know that Diablo Zen Podcast is now part of the Sound Talent Media family. Listen in as me and the one and only Danny Diablo, a.k.a. Lord Ezek, interview artists from the hardcore punk, metal, hip-hop scenes, and beyond. We have conversations with guests like actor Peter Green, DJ Muggs from Cypress Hill, L.A. street photographer Estevan Oriol, Jimmy G from New York City's legendary Murphy's Law, and pro wrestler Vampiro, to name a few. If you're a fan of good discussions, lots of laughs, tune in and join the fun.